Well, I'd invite you to turn in God's word, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, we have a lot of them in the seats in front of you there. And if you're using one of those uh, copies of God's word, it's going to be either page 761 or page 811. Matthew chapter 6. And as uh, Tim alluded to in his prayer, we do rejoice with Joshua and Anna Lee DeYoung in the, in the safe and healthy arrival of Kessed Rosalie on Wednesday, I believe it was, on uh, August 30th. And I believe they're home now and, and uh, doing well and getting oriented, as Tim said, to this new adventure, this new blessing. So I know a lot of you have been praying with and for them and rejoicing and will continue to do so and look forward to meeting little Kessid uh, hopefully sometime soon. But we're, we're excited for them. Well, our passage today in Matthew chapter 6 falls in the middle of what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this encompasses here in Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15, which is what is often referred to as either the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. I'm guessing they are words that most, if not all of you, are familiar with. And Jesus in this chapter, and really in the entire Sermon on the Mount, is teaching about what it means to belong to God's kingdom and what God's kingly rule and righteousness should look like in the daily lives of his people. And so in verses 5 to 15, Jesus directly addresses this matter of prayer. And so let's hear God's eternal and unchanging word beginning in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. Here's God's word. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And thus says the Lord God. Let me lead us in prayer as we ask his help as we look to his word. Well, our Father in heaven, even now through your word, spirit, and your work in our lives, we do pray that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, and that you would give to each of us all that we need this day, both materially and spiritually. You are the one you have revealed who perfectly knows the secrets of our hearts So please search our hearts and lead us in your everlasting way. Father, please help me to faithfully and clearly proclaim your word now for the blessing of your people and for your glory in Jesus. As we pray in his name, amen. And let it be so. Let it be so. 
Well, uh, it's possible as the summer ends and as we now jump into the month of September quite dramatically, even with a massive shift in our weather this weekend, which has been pleasant, I'm sure, for all of us, uh, it's possible that you're here today feeling somewhat overwhelmed, somewhat anxious, maybe even somewhat inadequate with things that are coming up. Perhaps you're feeling that way, perhaps you're not. And if you're not, well, rejoice. But know that such feelings are common and very frequent. It could be that you're troubled by things outside of you. It could be that you're troubled by things inside of you. Uh, It's possible and likely that you're troubled by both. And Lori and I, in our own lives, in our own experiences, we've been grateful for some vacation and some rest uh, over the summer. Uh, But we are now feeling the weight of numerous cares, responsibilities, and needs. And even this coming week, as I know is true for many of you as well, uh, there's a number of big-ticket items commencing, and we're kind of launching into the busyness of the fall. And the coming days can honestly seem a little bit ominous, a little bit dark. And so to to varying degrees and in varying ways, I'm sure that the same is true for each of you. And if you're not feeling that way now, it's not unlikely that you may be in time to come. Whether it's work issues or school issues or relationships or financial issues or health issues, parenting issues, and on down the line, even issues of your own soul before God, Whatever your present status is, the truths that we hear here in Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15, they are always relevant and they are always needed for all of us. Now, some of you may know that I've preached through this passage before in years past, but it just seemed timely this weekend to hear these words again from Jesus about prayer and the priority of God's kingdom. And I might mention, by the way, that Lord willing, the plan is next Lord's Day, we'll resume our study in the book of Colossians and continue to move through uh, the things the Lord has for us there. But this morning, this text just seemed to be uppermost in my heart and mind. And as we get into this text and explore what is here, I want you to see the strong connection with what Jesus says here in verses 5 to 15 about prayer And what he will then soon say near the end of the chapter in verse 33 about the priority of seeking God and his kingdom. He says there in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now you may be familiar that verse 33 with what Jesus says there, it summarizes an extended exhortation that Jesus has been making uh, going back to verse 19. And beginning there in verse 19, he's been warning against the danger of seeking and storing up fleeting treasures on earth rather than seeking and storing up eternal treasures in heaven. In fact, in verse 21, he very pointedly says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's very evident that Jesus is concerned about the affections and the ambitions of our hearts. Namely, what is it that we treasure? Is it money and all that money can buy, or is it God? 
And in this context, Jesus makes an emphatic and a richly illustrated argument for why we and all people are to treasure and seek God and his kingdom first. In other words, God alone is to always be our treasure, the source of our purpose, the source of our identity, the source of our provision and security and safety. And so Jesus summarizes all of this exhortation in verse 33 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, namely all the necessities of life, food, clothing, and shelter, they will be added to you. Now, I highlight this because you can see in the whole context of Matthew 6 that what Jesus says then in verses 5 to 15 about prayer is inseparably, inseparably connected with his command in verse 33 to seek first God's kingdom. And by the way, so is giving to the poor and fasting, which Jesus also addresses in this chapter, but those are other sermons for another time. And the point that I want us to see is that what Jesus says about prayer in verses 5 to 15 teaches us how to seek God's kingdom first. If we're to seek first God's kingdom, then we must seek him constantly in prayer. These are connected. And certainly seeking first God's kingdom involves much more than prayer. It involves our whole life, our time, our money, our abilities, our relationships. It involves everything, but it doesn't involve anything less than prayer. And so Jesus is teaching about the necessity and about the nature of true prayer. And the essence of his lesson in verses 5 to 15, here is the main truth, the big idea of what he's teaching is this. True prayer is a posture of heart consumed with seeking God and his kingdom. True prayer is a posture or it's a disposition of heart that is consumed with seeking God and his kingdom. Now, at the very forefront of this, we understand that true prayer is not mechanical, it's not formulistic, and it's not superstitious. But instead, as we'll see, it is a posture of heart consumed with seeking God and his kingdom. And as we get into the details of what Jesus says in verses 5 to 15, we're going to see that this prayerful, prayerful posture of heart involves three elements, three elements. And I want to mention these, and then we'll explore each one of them as they unfold in the text. But true prayer involves, first of all, relational sincerity, relational sincerity. Second of all, it involves reverent loyalty, reverent loyalty. And then third, it also involves complete dependency. This is the essence of the nature of true prayer, of this posture of heart that is consumed with seeking God and his kingdom. It involves relational sincerity, it involves reverent loyalty, and complete dependency. So let's look at each of these as they move along, as they unfold in what Jesus is saying here. First of all, true prayer involves relational sincerity. We're to pray with relational sincerity. In other words, and this is what we see in verses 5 to 8, 
In other words, true prayer happens in the context of a right relationship with God. It happens in the context of knowing, trusting, and seeking Him who is our good, loving, all-knowing Father in heaven. And Jesus makes it very clear that true prayer is not about trying to gain praise and approval from other people, but rather it's about receiving reward from our Heavenly Father. The reward of knowing Him and of walking with Him and of trusting Him. It involves relational sincerity. And notice in verses 5 and 6 that this relational sincerity is first of all expressed with secret faith, not showy performance. He says in verse 5 and 6, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have, reward, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus is not prohibiting public prayer here, even as we've done in our time together so far this morning. He's not prohibiting that, but he's addressing the motives and often the false motives that can be present behind praying in public. We're first and foremost to pray with a, a relational sincerity that's evidenced by a secret faith rather than a showy performance. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that this relational sincerity also involves, uh, it's to be expressed with simple words, not empty repetition. You hear what Jesus says, very straightforward. Verse 7, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You see how he's emphasizing again and again, the Father, the Father. He sees, he knows. Praying with relational sincerity, it involves secret faith, and it involves simple words to our Father in heaven. Again, no mechanical formulas or mystical incantations. Instead, we can simply come and be sincerely open, honest, and real with him. I've mentioned this many, many times before, but it is tragically ironic that even in the context of Jesus saying, don't use meaningless words and, and empty repetition and, and heap up empty phrases, in all that he's saying there, how tragic it is that many of us can easily recite the Lord's Prayer without even thinking about what's actually being meant. We were watching a show this week that involved um, football teams, and they had a scene in the locker room of a team before a game, and all of these guys are all huddled and bunched together, and they're reciting the Lord's Prayer. And then they're going out and trying to kill other people. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's meaningless often. And that's not what pleases God. That's not what God is after. He wants us to be able to come with relational sincerity. Being open and honest and real with him, with no sense of pretense or manipulation, no sense of trying to bargain with God with our words, no pride, no self-righteousness, but rather just the humble, sincere, simple words of a beloved child talking with their good, loving, and faithful father. 
in a context of a relationship of trust and security, relational sincerity. Now, even as Jesus teaches this here, we learn from elsewhere in Scripture that it is only through faith in Jesus that we can be restored to a right relationship with our Father through he- in heaven. And it's only through faith in Jesus, in his blood shed for us, and in his righteousness given to us, that we can know relational sincerity and security with the Father. For instance, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very direct and exclusive statement. We can only know God, be reconciled to the Father through faith in Jesus, his Son. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 Paul says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And a few sentences later down in verse 18, he says, for through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so to believe on Jesus, friends, is to be restored and reconciled to a right relationship with our Father in heaven, a relationship that gives us confidence and security and assurance before him. If we don't know Jesus, we literally don't have a prayer. And he calls us to turn from our sin And to be delivered from God's wrath and eternal judgment by fleeing to Christ in faith. It's in him and through him that we're forgiven and reconciled with the Father. Now I know in our fallen world that for many of you, the concept of knowing, trusting, and seeking God as the perfect and loving Father in heaven can sadly be very difficult because perhaps your earthly father was very imperfect and very unloving. I want you to know that God knows, that God cares about the pain and the sorrow that you may have experienced or even are experiencing from your earthly father. But I also want you to know that all that God has revealed of himself in his word is that he is not like any earthly father. He's unique. He is transcendent. He is supreme. He is perfect. He is loving. He is righteous and kind and faithful, and he is unchanging. And you can trust him, and you can come before him and pour out your soul before him. He knows, and he cares, and he will never let you down. And so, friends, true prayer is a posture of heart consumed with seeking God and his kingdom. And it involves, first of all, with what Jesus says in verses 5 through 8, praying with relational sincerity, with confidence in our relationship with him in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this leads to the second element of true prayer then, and we see this in verses 9 and 10 as Jesus begins to get into the details of how we're to pray. And this is that we're to pray with reverent loyalty. We're to pray with reverent loyalty. And so Jesus says, and again, very familiar, but grasp the meaning and significance of this. He says in verse 9, Pray then like this, 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is done immediately in heaven. And he's praying that God's will would be done immediately on earth, even as his kingdom would come, and even as his name would be hallowed. And with this, Jesus is teaching that true prayer involves reverent loyalty in terms of becoming increasingly consumed with and having a longing for the hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, and the doing of his will. And friends, this means worship. This means worship, reverent loyalty and allegiance to the fullness of God's person and purposes as he's revealed in his word. All that is bound up in his holy name, that it would be hallowed, that there would be a deepening adoration and praise and thanksgiving, a hallowing, a setting apart of his name. And it means there would be a deepening zeal for the, advan- for the advancement, for the coming of his kingdom, and a deepening zeal for the accomplishment of his will, the doing of the Father's will. All of this involves a reverent loyalty to God and to his saving, keeping, redeeming purposes. Now, you and I know, and we understand experientially, even if we may not always consciously uh, recognize it, that because of sin, this whole broken world is a massive kingdom, if you will, of rebellious, unrighteous darkness. It's the world we live in, the kingdom of darkness, as Paul refers to it in Colossians chapter 1. But in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, in and through King Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again, the light-shining and life-giving righteous kingdom of God has appeared. And as God's kingdom is now known spiritually through faith, all of his people eagerly await the day when Jesus will return. And when faith will be made sight and when the fullness of God's kingdom will be consummated in the new heavens and in the new earth. And beloved, in every page of scripture, God has revealed himself to be infinitely, unsearchably great. He's revealed himself to be full and overflowing with righteous truth, with goodness, with love and with life and with beauty and with power. And he's unsearchably great in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, and in his knowledge, his grace, and in his justice. Think back to what we read in the very first pages of Scripture in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 about the creation of the world and the creation of all that is in the heavens and the earth and the creation of humanity. Think about the thriving, flourishing, life-giving beauty of God's kingdom that's revealed there in Genesis 1 and 2. Remember what we're told at the end of Genesis 1 when God is finished with all of his creative work? Verse 31 of chapter 1 in Genesis, then God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was beautiful, it was flourishing, it was thriving, it was life-giving. But then as we know in Genesis 3, the kingdom of darkness corrupted God's good kingdom with sin and with death, and it carries on to this day. 
And the kingdom of darkness is, is filled and overflowing, isn't it, with rebellion, with idolatry, with pride, with selfishness, with hatred, with division and destruction and death. But again, you see in Jesus, God's good and life-giving kingdom, it has come and it is coming. In other words, there is an already not yet reality to God's kingdom, as theologians speak of it, an already not yet reality. In other words, it has already appeared, which is why Jesus declared, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He's speaking of it as a present reality, the kingdom of God is at hand. So it's already here in one sense, but there's also this not yet reality. It's not yet fully consummated, which is why Jesus teaches us to pray even here in Matthew 6 for God's kingdom to come. And it's at the very end of scripture in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that we see and we learn of the breathtakingly beautiful nature of God's kingdom with the new heavens and with the new earth. When the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin and death and tears will be no more. And so this is all bound up in what we're to be praying for as we're praying for God's name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come and his will to be done with reverent loyalty to our father and his redeeming, saving purposes in bringing restoration to all that he has created. And we're to be increasingly aligned with, we're to have allegiance to this, to the hallowing of his name and the coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, every time I consider this, it convicts me. It convicts me because how often and how easily my own prayers can be very consumed with zeal for the reputation of my name, for the coming of my little kingdom, for the doing of my will, as opposed to the hallowing of God's name and the coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will. You see, to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness means that we're to pray with relational sincerity, but also with this reverent loyalty. We're to ever align ourselves with and under God's name and God's kingdom and God's will. And so we see this as the very clear second element that Jesus is teaching in verses 9 and 10. Well, at this point, you might say, if our prayers are to be so focused on God and his kingdom, well, then what about our needs and our burdens and our cares? We can ask the question, what about my, my own present situation and the things that I'm dealing with? Does God know and does God care about me? Well, that's, of course, an excellent question, and the answer is found in the third element of true prayer that Jesus teaches that we see in verses 11 to 15. True prayer involves, first of all, relational sincerity, second of all, reverent loyalty, and third, it involves praying with complete dependency. Praying with complete dependency. And I might say complete and confident dependency upon God. This is what Jesus is speaking to in verses 11 to 15. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
And he goes on to elaborate on what he says in verse 12 about forgiving our debts as we forgive others. He, he makes it very clear the significance of this in verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you see and lay hold of just how comprehensively Jesus clarifies the nature of our true material and spiritual needs. In these few brief words, here's the reality of what you and I and every human being need. We need very little, really, and Jesus makes it very, very clear. There's a lot, of course, that we might desire But so often we confuse desires with needs. Jesus helps bring clarity to that confusion. This is the fullness of what we need. And it falls into three categories that just unfold there in verses 11 to 15. First of all, we need daily material provision, food, clothing, and shelter. And again, that's really what he elaborates on more fully in verses 19 to the end of the chapter when he's exhorting us to trust the Lord, to seek first his kingdom and righteousness, trusting that he'll provide all that we need for daily provision. And that gives perspective to how much we actually need. Do we trust God? Or do we trust our savings account or our retirement account or how much food we have in the kitchen? We're to always be trusting the Lord. Well, second of all, of course, we need daily pardon for our sins. And we're to be acknowledging that to God, confessing our sins to God on a daily, regular basis, knowing that he forgives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, when we're to pray that God would forgive us as we forgive others, it it gives testimony to how much we're really laying hold of his forgiveness and how quick and and disposed we are to eagerly forgive those who sin against us, who hurt us or who bother us or irritate us in any way. Are we quick to forgive? And Jesus' point is very emphatic. If we're not willing to forgive, we're not going to know and experience the forgiveness of God either. But we need regular forgiveness because we regularly sin in our affections, in our words, in our actions, and in a host of other ways. And then the third category of need is we need daily protection and deliverance from temptation and evil. And it's an acknowledgement that there are forces, there are realities because of indwelling sin, because of the fallen world that we live in, because of Satan and all of the demons that we cannot protect ourselves. We need God's help. And so there's this humility, this disposition that's constantly acknowledging dependency upon the Lord. Lord, I need provision from you. Lord, I need pardon and forgiveness from you. Lord, I need protection from you. And what a beautiful and comforting reality this is, is it not? That God our Father and the Lord Jesus perfectly know and they perfectly care for every need we could ever have. Every single need that we could conceive of, friends, falls into one of those categories. And that's what we need, and that's what God provides for us. And so as we learn to pray with relational sincerity, and as we learn to pray with reverent loyalty, we're also to pray with complete, confident dependency 
on our loving God to meet every need. And what faith-strengthening, comforting promises we have in Jesus in prayer. This isn't the only place that he speaks about prayer. All of Scripture both instructs and exemplifies us for us the nature of what prayer is all about. Let me just mention a couple of places. If you just look over in chapter 7, look at what Jesus says in verses 7 to 11 and hear these words in the context of everything he's just spoken about in chapter 6. So he says in chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or, he says in verse 9, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you see how he's incentivizing us to be seeking him constantly in prayer? Not as some dead, dry duty, but as the greatest delight to have a posture of heart that is increasingly seeking God and his kingdom with relational sincerity and reverent loyalty and with this constant dependency, knowing that he is a good, faithful, wise, righteous, loving God. And then here afresh, the promises of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And these are just some of so many passages that, that speak of the hope and the confidence we have. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a promise. Do you live in light of that promise? Through that promise and so many other promises of God's word, are you seeking to cultivate this posture of heart that is continually, confidently seeking God and his kingdom in prayer? Oh, lay hold of these, dear friends. That's the hope we have. The book of Psalms, the longest book in Scripture, is a prayer book. And it covers the entire spectrum of life experiences and of life emotion within those experiences. From the height of joy and praise and thanksgiving to the absolute groveling depths of despair and despondency. And yet in all of it, we learn so much about prayer from the book of Psalms, even as we see those things exemplified in the life of Jesus himself. Does God know and care about our needs? Does he know and care about our situation? Absolutely. Within his sovereign, good, kingdom purposes for the glory of his name. One example of this was 
brought home rather forcefully recently, and many of you have perhaps followed the story of the Contreras family that Lucy Presnell first shared with a lot of us through email in early July. If you're not familiar, on Sunday, July 9th, eight weeks ago today, uh, the Contreras family, a mom, a dad, and five kids, they were traveling home from an annual vacation with extended family in Oregon. And on the drive home, uh, the Contreras stopped for one last tank of gas just inside of Sacramento. And the gas station did not have a restroom, but they were uh, suggested or encouraged to go across the street and find one. And so as the mother, Grace, and her two youngest daughters, one age nine and one age six, neared the sidewalk, sadly, a drunk driver appeared out of nowhere, hit several poles along the road, careened towards them with squealing tires. And Grace was apparently out of the way, but she dove forward to push her daughters to safety. And her body took the brunt of the impact and was killed instantly. And her daughters fell to the ground, severely injured, but they both lived. And they were in the hospital for a number of weeks. Uh, They're now home. They're continuing to heal. And they recently started back to school. Well, the memorial service for Grace took place a week ago yesterday in El Dorado Hills. And among other things, as Lucy shared, a lot of you got this email earlier in the week, uh, passing that along and a a link to the video of that service. But among other things, during the service, Grace's son, Caleb, and her husband, David, both shared testimonies in the service. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already, I would urge you to listen to those testimonies. And with robust and yet challenging faith in Jesus and amid deep and very understandable grief, they both, Caleb and David, testified of God's care and provision, even as they poured out their souls to him in prayer, and even as they knew that hundreds, if not thousands, of other people were praying for them. This is where it becomes real. This is where we see the real, powerful gospel hope. That these aren't just nice, sentimental ideas. This is real life. This is reality. And even as Jesus teaches about prayer, it's deeply connected in the realities of the world in which we live. And so he's teaching here in Matthew 6 that true prayer is a posture of heart consumed with God and his kingdom, consumed with the eternal realities of God and his kingdom. And growing in true prayer, it's a growth process for all of us, is how we learn to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Prayer is central to all of this. It's not a mechanical, mystical formula, as I've said, but it involves relational sincerity. It involves reverent loyalty and complete dependency. And notice also that true prayer isn't just an individual private thing. There is a very real private intimate reality to our prayer and and our communion with God in prayer, but it's also corporate. And there's great significance in the pronouns that Jesus uses there. Our Father, give us this day, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation. 
And that's why prayer is an, is an impulse of our hearts. It ought to be a deepening impulse of our hearts, both individually and collectively. And this is why true prayer can't be measured simply by the amount of time you might spend in prayer. Prayer is really more like spiritual breathing. In other words, it's a supernatural impulse to just be constantly panting after God and seeking Him and His kingdom. And it's to, to flavor and to fill every aspect of our lives. We may not always consciously be praying, but that's the point of what I mean by saying it's a disposition of our heart. It's a posture of our heart that is constantly seeking God and his kingdom. And it is interesting to see all of this perfectly modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry as he moved ever closer to the cross. In his earthly life, the incarnate Son of God, he perfectly exampled praying with relational sincerity and fervent, uh, reverent loyalty and complete dependency. And all four gospel records tell us of how Jesus spent much time in prayer. And it wasn't just a, 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 an aspect of his life. It was breathing. It was his entire life as he panted after God and his kingdom. For instance, in John chapter 17, the whole chapter, uh, just likely a few hours before Jesus goes to the cross, is, is him seeking the Father in light of the culmination of his ministry and all that is coming following his crucifixion and his resurrection. And of course, we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, even as it's recorded, for instance, in Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus pours out his soul to the Father in prayer. And from a human standpoint, he's wrestling with and he's agonizing with submitting to the Father's will. You remember what he prays three different times? Father, if there's any way that this cup of suffering can be taken from me, please take it away from me. And yet, what's his deepening resolve that even seems to strengthen as he prays? What does he say? Father, not my will, but your will be done. And of course, he fulfilled the Father's will. Friends, this is what true prayer is, a posture of heart, constantly seeking God and his kingdom, at times wrestling with him, agonizing with him, pouring out our souls to him. Sometimes it may not even involve words, but just, just groans and longings, knowing that God knows our hearts. But as we're increasingly fed and informed by his word, so we respond to that by increasingly walking with him in prayer, bringing our desires, aligning ourselves with his name and his kingdom and his will, looking to him for the provision of our material needs, confessing our sins to him, looking to him for protection. This is prayer that pants after God. Well, as we draw this together, I, I wonder what practical what specific ways God might have you, even today, make some changes to grow in true prayer? What specific and practical ways might he be prompting you to make some changes? Maybe it's planning to go to bed a little earlier and wake up a little earlier than normal to spend time with him in his word and prayer. Maybe it's committing yourself anew to gathering when we gather for corporate worship, even as we are now and as we will be again this evening for, for worship and prayer. Prayer is an aspect, of course, of our worship. 
Maybe it's taking the initiative to pray regularly with someone else. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a friend. But seeking the Lord together and purposing to do that. Maybe it's making some significant and specific decisions regarding how much you're using social media or how much you have the television on or your computer on or a thousand other things that can be a distraction to us. I don't know what it may be. I know things that are there for me, but I, put, I wonder what practical, specific ways God might be prompting you to ch- change. Well, friends, as Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, it's in him and through him that we can be reconciled to the Father and that we can know that we have confidence in his presence. If we've repented and are trusting Christ, we are forever forgiven. We're counted righteous in the righteousness of Christ. We are reconciled to our Father in heaven. And all the blessings that are ours because Jesus gave his body and his blood on the cross for us. And it's in him and through him we can always come confidently before God. Even though we know we still have sin that we're fighting and dealing with. But he's a good God, a gracious God, and a merciful God who wants to forgive and cleanse and help us to mature in obeying him and following after him and becoming more like Jesus. That's why we can always come confidently to God's throne of grace, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he hears us, knowing that Jesus, he has given for us.